It's 1970, and the mayor of Montreal, John Drapeau, declares that the Montreal Games, planned for 1976, will be self-financing. In his view, these games can no more have a deficit than a man can have a baby. In fact, he thinks, the real problem will be in determining how to spend the surplus. But over the coming years, all this optimism will evaporate, and the games will become a financial disaster. This is the story about how it all goes so horribly wrong. This is the Brady Haywood Podcast, a show about failures and disasters. On the show, we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure, and we explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. I'm your host, Sean Brady. In today's episode, you'll hear how, despite having a less-than-stellar track record when it comes to managing finances, the mayor of Montreal thought he could make these Olympics the first self-financing games in history. You'll hear how the initial estimate for the cost of the games was shockingly low, and you'll also hear how the structures they wanted to build for the Olympics were incredibly complex. So the story of the Montreal Olympic Games begins in 1970, when Montreal is awarded the 1976 Games. Now, Montreal wins the bid against two international heavyweights, Moscow and Los Angeles. And world politics is in Montreal's favour. The Cold War is on, and there are concerns that giving the Games to either Moscow or Los Angeles will inflame Cold War tensions. These concerns turned out to be well-founded. Moscow did win their bid for the 1980 Games, But because Russia had invaded Afghanistan the previous year, the US boycotted the Games. Then four years later, the 1984 Games were held in Los Angeles and the Russians boycotted those, with many feeling this was out of revenge. So awarding the 1976 Games to someone like Montreal seemed like a safe decision. It would turn out that they couldn't have been more wrong. Now, one of the reasons I find this story so interesting is that in 1970, the mayor of Montreal declared, as you know, that these games would be the first self-financing games in Olympic history, and they would cost no more than $124 million. So the games get awarded in 1970, and pretty much nothing happens until 1972. So two years, or one third of the total project time, is simply wasted. And when they do start, Mayor Drapeau scraps the original plans and selects an architect called Roger Tellerbert to deliver the games. Now, Tellerbert was selected without competition. And the reason for this was that Drapeau loved Tellerbert's Parc de Prince. This was a 48,000-seat football stadium that had recently been completed in France. Drapeau was obsessed with it. And he wanted Tellerbert to make a big architectural statement at the Montreal Games. But alarm bells should have been ringing. 
because neither Drapo nor Talibar had a good track record in financial management. Talibar's Parc de Prince had cost $25 million, much more than the original budget of $9 million. And Mayor Drapo's 1967 Expo had cost $430 million, a big overrun from an original budget of $160 million. And as well as the history of these two people, alarm bells should have also been ringing regarding the initial estimate of $124 million. This seemed way too low. By way of comparison, the 1972 games, which were held in Munich, had a budget of $600 million, more than four times that slated for Montreal. And to add to that, the structures that Talibert wanted to build for the games would be incredibly challenging from an engineering perspective. So let's talk about some of the structures. Now we're going to spend most of the rest of the episode talking about two of them. The main stadium and the velodrome, where they planned to hold the cycle racing. Both structures were going to be constructed from precast, post-tensioned concrete. Now if you're not familiar with this, precast concrete means that you form the concrete in a mould, then erect it on site. Then, in order to tie all these precast pieces together, you post-tension it. You run steel cables through ducts in the concrete, then tension the cables. So these two structures were very complex. And this was essentially like trying to build a very difficult and awkward three-dimensional jigsaw puzzle. This was going to cause massive problems. Then add to that, you'll have Canadian winters to contend with. So cold weather will play a very insidious role in this story. Then to add to that, the design will be carried out in France. This means that the drawings are going to be presented in SI units, so in meters and millimeters. And these will require conversion to the English system, so they'll have to be converted into yards, feet and inches, and you have to get these conversions right. And that's time-consuming. So let's step back here. You're in 1972. You have four years until the Games. You have a mayor and an architect who's selected without competition with a history of cost overruns. And you have the very optimistic starting budget of only $124 million. And you have a non-negotiable deadline for a world-class event that will create extreme embarrassment if it's missed. Yet despite all this, Mayor Drapeau declares, as you've already heard, that the Montreal Games can no more have a deficit than a man can have a baby. So let's hear where this all goes wrong. Now, as you heard, we'll focus on two key structures, the Olympic Stadium and the velodrome. The velodrome was for holding the cycling events. The construction of the velodrome was won by Charles Jurenso, and the bid value for this was $12 million. Now, importantly, as this company was bidding, there was only semi-complete plans. So the opportunity to get the bid value wrong was substantial. And this was the first structure in the project to be awarded by competitive bidding. And it would turn out to be the last structure as well. Because of the two wasted years, they couldn't have a tender process from this point forward. There wasn't enough time. So from now on, all the structures will just get directly awarded to contractors. So this velodrome, from an architectural perspective, has a low roof, and the design calls for three arches to make it look like a cycling helmet. These arches are 171 metres long, but they're only 27 metres high. 
and they're constructed from the precast concrete sections we talked about earlier. And the problem with these arches from a structural engineering perspective is that they're very, very long and also very low. And this causes an issue because a shallow arch generates very large thrust forces that try to kick the bottom of the arch out. So from an engineering perspective, you need to ensure your foundations are strong enough to resist these thrust forces. A taller, less shallow arch would have had lower thrust forces. And these large thrust forces cause a big problem because it turns out that the base of one of the arches is located on really rocky subsoil. And this subsoil isn't strong enough to support the outward thrust of the arch. Now, this wasn't identified in the original geotechnical testing. And to resolve it, they have to do a huge amount of work. They have to drive tendons into the ground and they have to do extensive grouting works. And this has a huge impact on the budget. The original foundation budget was just under half a million dollars. When they finished this remedial work, that half a million dollars has ballooned to more than $7 million. This means that the foundations alone cost almost 60% of the original Valodrome budget. And this is only the beginning of the problems. The delays and the cost overruns continue, mostly due to Taliaber's slow pace of submitting finished plans. And in the middle of all this, they have labour issues, which continue throughout the project. In terms of timing, the velodrome is due to be finished in 1974, which is two years prior to the Olympics. And the reason for this is that it has to be ready to host the World Cycling Championships. But they miss this deadline. And that forces the championships to be held at a temporary facility, which has to be built at the University de Montreal's football stadium. So this building is causing a world of pain. And in order to keep the project moving, subcontractors have to be hired. So from this point forward, cost plus contract arrangements start to become the norm. Overtime is granted and the work continues. And while the structure started off with an estimate of $12 million, by this stage the cost has blown out to $34 million and it still isn't complete. Now why is this budget blowing out? Well, there are plenty of reasons. There's the foundation issues we spoke about earlier. There's the labour problems. For example, the costs of the labour problems alone, in terms of strikes and overtime, add up to around $12 million, which is the original budget for the entire building. And another reason for the blowout is that Taliabar just doesn't want to use any value-added engineering. As you heard earlier, if he'd been willing to make the arches taller, then the thrust forces could have been decreased. But Taliabar didn't want to do this. He stressed that architecture was an art form. Nothing was going to compromise that, not even sound engineering decisions. And when the structure is finally completed, its original estimate of $12 million blows out to $70 million, almost six times the original budget. And just to illustrate how little Montreal got in terms of value for money, here's a comparison. The 7,000-seat velodrome cost Montreal $7 million. Contrast that to the 60,000-seat stadium constructed in Seattle that cost only $60 million. The velodrome cost around 10 times the Seattle stadium on a per-seat basis. But if the velodrome was a project management failure, the Olympic stadium 
was becoming a project management nightmare. So the Olympic Stadium, which of course is going to be a centrepiece for the Games, is elliptical in plan, not circular. And we'll come back to why this is important from an engineering perspective. The stadium is known as the Big O, with the letter O representing the stadium's shape. But it soon becomes known by a slightly different name, the Big O, as in O-W-E, because it costs so much. Now, as you heard earlier, only the velodrome is put up for tender. The other structures are just awarded to contractors. And the choice of contractor for the stadium is interesting. It's awarded to the very same contractor that's building the velodrome. The very same contractor that's running into a world of trouble on the velodrome. But despite this, they're also given the stadium to build. So what's the big challenge with the stadium? The stadium's constructed of precast concrete ribs. To visualize what this structure looks like during construction, you need to think of it as a series of vertical ribs running around the perimeter of the stadium. It looks like the upturned rib cage of an animal skeleton. Now, each of these ribs are precast individually, put into place, and then they have to be held in place during construction or they'll fall over. Then they have to be post tensioned together. And this causes huge issues. Now, if you have a circular stadium, then each of these ribs is identical in shape. But because this stadium is oval in plan, it means that no two sets of ribs are the same. So each of these ribs has to be cast separately. Then they have to be brought to the right place on site, erected into position, then you have to tie the whole thing together. And because all these ribs are different shapes, rib misalignment is really, really common, which means that treading these post-tension cables through the ribs is very tricky. And to make that even more problematic, these cables have to be threaded through post-tensioning ducts in the ribs, which are just empty tubes that run through the precast sections. And the problem here is the Canadian winter. Water runs into these ducts and freezes. So now you have to break out the ice before you can proceed with tensioning. And there are other constructability issues too. One of the problems is there's no room for internal scaffolding around the ribs. The only way you can actually hold a rib in place is to use a crane. And at one point, they have 80 cranes holding these ribs in place. In fact, there's so much congestion that adding more cranes doesn't really improve productivity because crane congestion becomes the limiting factor. And as all this is going on, time is running out. And you can imagine the pressure and the massive fear of embarrassment that's rising at the thought of missing the deadline for hosting the games. And once this fear becomes very real, the whole project starts to unravel. Free spending goes rampant, corruption goes through the roof, and the union realizes it has incredible power to get what it wants. The project is now in a world of cost plus contracts. And this is because you've got this hard deadline. And these sort of contracts give very little incentive to reduce costs. This means that you can try and throw more money and manpower at the project, but you get diminishing returns. And add to all this the weather, which is gobbling money. At one stage, they're spending $400,000 a day on heating just to keep the project moving. Then you get to 1975, one year before the Olympics, and costs are absolutely ballooning. So the province of Quebec steps in and physically takes the project away from the city of Montreal. 
the province of Quebec will now manage things and foot the bill. The question is, can they get everything finished on time? The first thing they do is kick Drapeau and Talibar off the site. Then in 1976, the same year of the games, they sit down with the contractors and tell them that if they don't speed up, the project will be shut down and the games will be moved elsewhere. And just to illustrate how badly the system was being abused, this ultimatum resulted in a productivity increase of 500%. And amazingly, all of this worked, and the project was finished in time for the games, but the financial damage was enormous. Taking the stadium alone, the original estimate for the stadium back in 1970 was $40 million. This estimate was revised in 1972 from 40 to $130 million in the space of just two years. By the time it was finished, the original estimate of $40 million had jumped to an astonishing $836 million, 20 times more. Each seat cost $13,000. That's more than five times the cost per seat of the New Orleans Superdome. So what went wrong here? Well, it turns out it was many things that came together to make it all go this wrong. You have Mayor Drapo appointing itself project manager, and the first mistake he makes is giving free reign to the architect. Time pressure plays a role. They wasted the first two years, which meant that they couldn't have a tender process going forward. Only the velodrome, as you heard, was put out for tender. And once construction actually started, Talibar was perpetually late with plans. And that generated a situation that everyone else could take advantage of. Everyone else could hide behind the fact that he was running late. And in addition to running late, when the designs did arrive, they were incredibly complex and didn't focus on constructability at all. And this theme ran through the whole project. We saw it in the velodrome, we saw it in the stadium. There was even a viaduct that had to be constructed, and because of its shape, it needed specific formwork. The formwork cost 15 times the cost of conventional formwork. And the only reason the contractor eventually accepted the work was at a cost-plus basis and on the condition that they would not be held responsible for the completed structure. Now, when it was all over, there was a commission of inquiry, and it would blame Drapeau, Talibar, and the Olympic Organization Committee for the mess, as well as labor unions, contractors, and suppliers. Basically, everyone got blamed. Which brings us all the way back to Drapeau's comment that this was meant to be the first self-financing Olympic Games. So now let's look at the numbers. The original budget for the Games, as you'll remember, was $124 million. That got revised up to $310 million in 1972. So they already more than doubled the budget before they even started properly. And what started out as a $124 million budget would balloon into a cost of $1.5 billion before the project was finished. To pay off this debt, the city of Montreal, rather than having a self-financing Olympic Games, had to set up a special Olympic tax on real estate. The Olympic lottery they'd set up had to be extended to beyond the Games to 1979. They even had to introduce a special tobacco tax in 1976 to generate revenue. In the end, the first self-financing Olympic Games 
were finally paid off in 2006, a full 30 years after the games finished. This project had everything. Poor planning, fraudulent practice, corruption, and it shows what happens when architectural and financial free reign combine with political ambition and immovable deadlines. And I think the whole project is best summed up in the words of Taliber himself, the architect. He said, That's all Canadians and the Americans talk about. Money, money, money. It doesn't interest me at all. You've been listening to the Brady Haywood Podcast, where we examine the technical, human and organisational causes of failure and explore why our decision-making is not nearly as rational as we think. Join me on the first of each month for our next episode. So you don't miss out, you can subscribe to the show on your podcast app now. And if you enjoyed the show, I'd love if you could leave us a five-star review. It really helps other people find the show. This podcast was produced by Brady Haywood, a firm that specializes in forensic engineering and the investigation of incidents, defects, and failures in the mining and construction sectors. If you'd like to speak to us, you can find more information on our website, bradyhaywood.com.au. I'm your host, Sean Brady. Thanks for listening.